0: Hilary Richardson wrote concerning uh, the book of Samuel, which in our Bible is two books, but in the uh, original text was one long book, uh, these words, It would be hard to find anywhere a greater narrative. Eli, Samuel, Saul, David, Goliath, the witch of Endor, Jonathan, the true friend, Joab, Uriah, Bathsheba, Nathan, Absalom... And other characters, they're all depicted and played up against each other with a sureness of touch and technique and fidelity that was never surpassed. Scenes and events are handled with the utmost sincerity and graphic power. And here, as is generally the case in the Bible, all of this is accomplished with the fewest of words. Well, today we enter upon uh, this particular masterful book. And as we do, We must pay careful attention to how exactly it is introduced to us. Uh, One of my pet peeves, uh, and I've got a long list if you ever want to hear them all, uh, is when we sit down to watch a movie as a family, invariably there'll be one person uh, still moving around and they will say to me, oh, it's okay, go ahead and start it. I will get there in a few minutes which really frustrates me, as if the first five to 10 minutes of the film are just filler. Uh, You know, as if there wasn't some screenwriter and director that put a lot of time and energy to tell us exactly what he wanted us to know in those opening scenes. I find it interesting that it's often the same person or people in my household that will later on have questions about exactly what's going on in said film. Uh... And that is all because, of course, the opening scene tells us quite a bit. It tells us often the location of the film, the setting, the characters. We're being informed right away at what our disposition should at least initially be toward these characters. It is from here that the story will be launched. And to miss it, of course, is to risk uh, missing the whole meaning of the story being presented. Well, that is what we have this morning in the book of the Samuel. We really do have the opening scene. Uh, And in one sense, we get a lot more background here than we will in other spots in Samuel, and it's because the author is trying to lay for us the foundation of all that will come hereafter. And we see then in these first eight verses really the background of our book. Uh, What may not be evident to all, but uh, at least I will make it evident, is that the book of Samuel begins here in these first seven chapters, uh, really with the book of Judges as its background. We have entered the time period of the Judges that is still upon us. Uh, We have not shifted yet into the monarchy of Israel. We are still here under this particular sort of rule and episodes. And you will remember the refrain from that book as we went through it some years ago that continued From the beginning of the book all the way till its conclusion that at that time there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, Israel as a nation is living in the midst of moral and religious chaos. Uh, They are surrounded by enemies, the large enemy, of course, the Philistines, as we saw even in Samson's story. Uh, But there are others as well, the Ammonites and so forth. But there are enemies all around. Uh, But what's most dangerous in Israel uh, is Israel. Uh, Their way of living is so out of control. I mean, the priesthood uh, is full of crass materialism. You know, there's Levites being rented out for hire, doing whatever people are asking of them, setting up idols and setting up liturgies to those idols if need be. I mean, it gets so bad that the nation, forgetting their charter, uh, decides that they're going to wipe out one of the tribes, only to remember after they've wiped them out, that probably wasn't the best idea, so to solve the problem, they just go steal a bunch of virgin women from some other people and take them by force uh, and uh, enter into marriage, also known uh, as rape in the most uh, strict, strict sense. Uh, and that's really how the book of Judges ends in this really ugly black hole. Uh, And this is where the book of Samuel begins in this darkness. Our opening scene then presents for us at least a faint flicker of hope in the land of Israel. Uh, But it won't let us forget as we go on uh, what surrounds this little bit of light that we're seeing. Uh, Begins our story this morning with a family uh, headed up by this man, El Kanah, and then we get a list of all of his relatives, none of which you've ever heard of because they're of no import whatsoever. Uh, and so while we get his genealogy, we also realize that he's not really related to anyone all that significant. There was once a man, we are told. That is how our story begins. And that phrase, there was once a man, is, again, really a continuation of the book of Judges. This is exactly how the Samson story is introduced. There was once a man, and then what do we have? We have a barren wife and so forth. And so we feel this is, again, a continuation of what has gone before with this opening formula. But we are greeted by this man, Elkanah, who goes to Shiloh every year uh, for some annual feast that is not named uh, and there he goes to the tabernacle where uh, uh, he makes sacrifice and he worships before the Lord and pays his vows. And we really do see, at least initially, this impressive devotion, especially during an age when there's no king in Israel. And heretofore, everyone has done what is right in their own eyes. This man is following the prescriptions of Moses, he's worshiping the God of Israel, he's faithful. Amidst a time of utter turmoil, there really is this hope of some sort of remnant that remains in the land. What's interesting, he goes to Shiloh year after year, and that name will ring bells if you know your Bible really well, and it's in that town where we saw all those women being kidnapped and taken for the tribe of Benjamin so that they could survive. Uh, But now we have a man worshiping Yahweh faithfully there. A singular family, if you will, marching up to church year after year. And so that as readers, we get this favorable impression of this family. We like this man. We're interested in his story. There is hope once again. But as soon as we see this good news, we also are told a little bit of bad news. There's one wife in the household who is unable to bear children. We learn that Elkanah has two wives, one barren, one fruitful, And again, this should turn on a few light bulbs. We've heard this story before. I mean, how many stories of the patriarchs begin this very way? So as readers, as those who are entering into this narrative, it should focus our attention and say, usually when something like this happens from the past, something big is born out of this sort of tragedy. And so we lean in as readers, and the story that we're told is this. Every year, year after year after year, they faithfully march up to worship, to sacrifice, to keep the law. And every year, this one wife, Hannah, comes back empty. Uh, And, you know, for the Hebrew reader, there's a real stark juxtaposition. Hannah, her name means the favored one. And in one sense, she is. She is favored. She's favored by her husband. It's fairly clear that Elkanah loves her most. But she's not favored as far as it concerns her womb. Her womb seems to be dead. She is unable to bear children. So she's first as far as love is concerned, but she is last as far as children are concerned. And quite likely, that is why wife number two was brought along to begin with to solve this particular problem. Elkanah can't have his name snuffed out. To have a son is very important in the nation, and so if your wife can't bear children, it was not unheard of, again, to bring a second wife into the house, and so you can only imagine the fun tensions that that might present. Well, maybe you hear this and it doesn't strike you as too big of a deal, although, you know, pastorally speaking, any sort of inability to have children usually causes enough emotional pain that we can, you know, hopefully hear this story and sympathize, but we can't quite sympathize merely because of the emotional pain, that this, in the nation of Israel, the inability to have children goes far beyond just a mother's desire or a woman's desire to to become a mother, I mean, having children really was a life and death matter in certain ways. I mean, uh, it was economically very important. You know, if you're trying to sustain your own family farm uh, and you have no kids, that's pretty difficult to do. Uh, You also are threatened with the reality as you get up in years uh, with no social safety net. Uh, Your children are that social safety net. So if you have none, you really are left exposed to the mercies of those outside of your own household. Beyond that, it's a national issue. I mean, to have sons is to have warriors, to have those who could join the army and defend your nation. So to have none really becomes a threat nationally. If enough people aren't bearing children, well then, pretty soon, you will be overrun. But for Elkanah, it's a name issue. Uh, You know, his name and heritage, his hopes are all riding on the birth of a son who will carry his name into the next generation. And that's where we meet Penana. That's how she comes into our story. You'll notice when she's introduced, there's no mention of love toward her. There is the mention of children. You know, in one sense, that's her role, which you can only imagine has its own pain involved in it. Her honor is those kids, and she will use that honor in a pretty vindictive way, as we'll see. And we get this kind of panned back year after year view of what their family life is like. You'll notice that's how the story is told. We don't get to a particular event for quite some time. It's just year after year, they go up and they sacrifice. And at the sacrifice, what's interesting is that it must be some sort of peace offering because Elkanah comes back with portions of the meat that have been dedicated to the Lord and he starts to dole them out to the family. And he gets to, you know, Peninnah, and he's, you know, giving her, a, you know, a whole brisket or a tri-tip, you know, a lot of meat because she's got a lot of kids. Uh, and so all these portions are being given to her and it's becoming real apparent, you know, uh, as Hannah's sitting there that her plate is less full. But what Elkanah does to show her his endearment towards her is, you know, he gives her, you know, a a ribeye or or something that is, you know, uh, while you only get one piece, at least you get the choicest piece. That's really what the text is going after. She gets a worthy portion, probably not a double portion, but she gets the best of what is presented. And so just at the family table... As you look around, I mean, there's, there's tension on the plate, if you will. This one has a lot, but this one has the best. There's one who's clearly favored by the husband as far as love, but there's one who's been favored by God, at least as far as children are concerned. And so as the, things, uh, as the meat is sitting there on the plate, we're told every year, Peninnah brings up what's going on, that she verbalizes uh, what is there already, uh, if you will, uh, in in, in physical form. And she mocks and derides her rival, we're told, that there really is this rivalry going on in the household and basically says like, oh man, I don't, don't know what I'm gonna do with all of this meat. You know, hopefully we can finish it all because there's so many portions for me. And every year, Hannah can anticipate that her heart will be broken and she will come back beat down in this particular way. It's interesting, this annual observance of the law is where Hannah has her hardest encounters. You know, this place where you would expect God's blessing, even those reading the text, we have this faithful family, we would expect God blessing this faithful family with kids, but we have one member of the family who appears, uh, you know, if you will, not blessed. And not only that, it's, you know, her greatest source of torture is when she goes and worships the Lord in public with her family every single year. I mean, what's tough is that Moses makes plain that barrenness is one of the results of the sanctions of the curse, that if God is going to punish Israel, closing the womb is one of the things that he will do. And Hannah only knows what's revealed. She knows that she has no children. And the law tells her that that reality says that she is under curse in some way. And no matter how much she obeys at this point, no matter how many times she goes up year after year obeying the law of Moses, it never undoes this reality. And what is worse, look at how the storyteller reveals it to us. She isn't called barren, which would be the normal language in Hebrew for her condition. But he tells us very specifically that Yahweh himself closed her womb, that this is God's doing. We know more in one sense in the story than the characters know. She doesn't know that it was, you know, God's personal hand that had done this. And while we know that it's the Lord's doing, we still, as readers, have no idea why. Until the year that drives our story forward. There's one year that comes up that Hannah is you know, broken beyond what she can bear. She just can't take it anymore. And so we see, you know, this hope has been deferred and deferred and deferred. You know, her rival has been rubbing it in, and finally she breaks. And it says she starts to weep. She refuses to eat. Uh, You know, she's experiencing what, you know, in the modern world we would call depression, right? She's listless. She's unable to eat. And she's living in what appears to be a hopeless situation. There doesn't seem to be any end in view. As one author writes, in depression, this faith in deliverance in ultimate restoration is absent. The pain of depression is unrelenting. And what makes the condition intolerable is the foreknowledge that no remedy will come. Not in a day or an hour, a month, or in a minute. It's one thing to have hardship. It's another thing when you look forward into the future and you realize there's no end to the hardship. It's always going to be black at the end of this reality. And even her well-meaning, loving husband cannot remedy the situation. I mean, very, very uh, stereotypical male move here. He goes, you know, what are you crying about? You've got me. (laughs) Uh, Which in one sense, again, uh, he's trying to tell her, look, I love you. You have me. We have each other. Very loving, uh, you know, uh, disposition But what he's missing is the fact that, you know, she's had him year after year. What she needs, what she wants, what she desires is a child. So while his love is clear, at least in this situation, his wisdom may be questionable. And so we are told that the story shifts at this point. Hannah gets up and that's where the action begins. I mean, all this till now has just been what's happened every single year. And now we have this situation where we have one woman broken by her circumstances, arising from the family meal and leaving. And we don't even know what she's going to do, at least not for a few seconds. And then we shift into this next part of the story where we see this desperation made known. As everyone's done eating, she arises and we'll notice she goes to pray. She goes to the tabernacle in Shiloh, and as readers, we know, well, that's good. You're going to the right place, and you're crying out to the right person. If he's the one that's closed your womb, surely he's the one that can open it. And she acknowledges several things. I mean, she is powerless over this dead womb. They, I'm sure, have tried everything within their reason to change it. And so, she goes to this one who can bring life from the dead. I mean, that is what Ultimately, her prayer is, but all real prayer, really is born of this, an acknowledgement that you've come to the end of your strength and that God is the one who must act. There are things that we need that we can't accomplish, and so we go to the one who can. I mean, prayer isn't, I think a lot of times we think, you know, it's some sort of you know, a uh, uh, thing that we tick a box off, and it's a, you know, it's a good work that we do, but in, in reality, it's coming to God uh, w- with our powerlessness, with empty hands, and saying, we need you, the one who can do what we are unable to do. And notice she calls out to the Lord of hosts. This is the second time this term is used. The very first time was in the first few verses of our text. This term will be used nearly 300 times in scriptures, the Lord of hosts. You know it pretty well as a Bible reader. But the first time it's mentioned is that it says Elkanah goes up year after year to the pray to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the second time is here when Hannah calls out to the Lord of hosts concerning a child. It's a military term. And she's basically calling out to the one who commands all might and all power and all armies. And she says, you have the power to help me. Look at my affliction, she says, and remember me. You know, it's not that God had just forgotten that Hannah existed. That's not what she's saying. It's not that God had drawn a blank. But she's saying, remember me in your covenant love. You know, look on me with favor. One lonely woman goes to the God of all the armies confident that not only will he hear her, but that he knows her and somehow he cares for her enough to answer her singular cry in time of need. I mean, that's pretty bold where she just says to him, notice me already, you know, stop forgetting me in this area. Show me your favor. And Hannah really does, if you will, put herself in a special class of people in Israel. She says to God, look at my affliction, the same word that's used, when God remembers the affliction of Israel and he delivers them the first time from Egypt and the Exodus. And look at how Hannah has been described. She's barren. She's harassed or irritated. Verse 10, she has bitterness of soul. Verse 11, I'm afflicted. In verse 16, I've poured out my soul. I've poured out verse 16, the abundance of my complaint. The reason all of that's important to take in, she really has placed herself in a special class of people that God says he loves And he hears. She is a part of the anavim, the poor ones, the humble, the poor, the afflicted, the ones that God promises certain things all throughout Scripture. Listen to how the psalmist speaks of it. For the needy will not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor, that same word, shall not perish. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble, same word, and you will strengthen their heart. You will give an ear to their cry. The poor man cried, same word, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his trouble. I mean, as she names herself in this way, we automatically, as readers, begin to sympathize and side with her, or at least we should, because we know that God sides with these kind of people. That these are the sorts of people that God, all throughout Scripture, says when they cry to me, I will come to them and I will give them aid in their time of need. And as she's praying, she vows a vow that if God gives her a son, she will give the son back to God. I mean, that's a strange part of this story. So you've been without a kid for all these years, you've been teased about it. You pray, God, give me a child. And if you do, I won't keep the child. I mean, how does that answer any of her need? Well, clearly, her need isn't merely emotional. It's not merely a need for motherhood. But rather, part of what she's getting after is, Lord, I need to know that you're favorable toward me. This childlessness seems to say that I am under the the hand of curse from you, and I want to know that I am favored by you. And as we will see this is more than just a personal child it's a national one and Samuel as we will see becomes the answer to her affliction. You know Hannah really is as we will see through the story very much like the nation from which she comes favored by her husband just like Israel was favored by God and yet at this time in her history in their history barren And fruitless, seeming to be under the curse as they're surrounded by enemies and in need. And as she asks, she offers her son as a Nazarite, dedicated to God, dedicated to a life to serve God. You know, that same language that comes from the story of Samson, she borrows very intentionally, and we're almost looking at Samuel as like the next judge in order, at least if you're reading the story that way someone who can begin the salvation of the Lord. And as she's praying this prayer, we're told she's making these vows and promises in her heart, and her lips are moving, but no words are coming out. She's not speaking. And we meet Eli the priest in person by his first words, and we don't find him immediately appealing right off, uh, and this is how you learn the characters of the story. Uh, Eli reveals a little bit about himself. He le- reveals a little bit about the state of Israel. And our first impression is poor. We love Hannah and Eli is, uh, at least right now, on the chopping block. Uh, and he says to her, woman, what are you, drunk? You know, put your wine away and stop drinking. You know, he rebukes her right off. Uh, and, and you know, the commentators are, are you know, all up in uh, the air about why this is, but there's a few things that we learn from this. Either Eli is uh, so unused to seeing anyone in Israel this desperate and desirous for, for God that they're praying in this way that it's just unknown to him, or it's pretty common that people just show up at the tabernacle drunk. Neither uh, apparently is out of question that cultic laxity is genuine during this time in Israel's history. History. But we at least learn this is that Eli is not only old, he is imperceptive. And the rebukes that he's giving here are off base and the rebukes that he will fail to give later on will testify to this quite plainly. But notice Hannah's response, which of course makes us love her all the more, not angry, She says, look, I'm not drunk. I'm not pouring, you know, spirits into myself. I'm pouring my spirit out of myself to the Lord. And so Eli changes his tune and he tells her to go in peace. And she takes that blessing from the priest and she believes it by faith. And You'll notice her whole countenance changes. Nothing has changed in her circumstance yet, but she believes the word of the priest as the word of the Lord and it says her face brightens, she's able to eat for the first time in all this feasting year after year, she's a part of the feast, she has joy because of the blessing of the priest. What's interesting is that Eli hasn't heard her prayer, he has no idea what he's just promised her. He's pretty much just promised her the end of his job, uh, but he doesn't know that yet uh, and that is not at least his intention. And so we're told in the text, Elkanah knows his wife, but the important part is God remembers her. He has heard her cry and he gives her a son. God remembers her and opens her womb. He hears the plight of the poor ones. This theme all throughout Scripture this is the God that we serve. He hears the cries of the desperate and the poor. And he remembers them. And the God who chose to close the womb opens it after all this time. And as a reader, you have to ask, why now? And what sort of child is this going to be? Why is this happening in Israel's story? Why has the whole Bible stopped to talk about this one lady and her problem and this kid? And that is where our story closes with this vow that is kept. You'll notice Elkanah the very next year says, hey, we're going up to keep the annual feast. And she says, no, I'm staying home until this child is weaned, which in one sense is beautiful. She has a child to nurse, but it only really ups the pain of the story that for about probably the next three years, she will come to know and love what she calls her son. Knowing that her intention is to give him away. And so that maternal closeness and bond will be made. The emotional tie will have to then be broken. And for us as readers, we just wonder, can she do it? And not only can she do it, will God actually require this of her? I mean, we've seen God let people off the hook before, whether it be Abraham and Isaac, or you fill in the blanks. But God does take the son. And that should tell us something that must mean that this son, again, has a story for is part of the story in an important way, that this will be the beginning of the move from the tribal confederacy of Israel to the monarchy of Israel. And it won't be because this son is a king, even though that's maybe what we imagine as readers, but he will be a kingmaker. He will anoint those first two famous kings in Israel and will be a prophet to the nation. This story is more than just about uh, Hannah's personal pain. It's a national story. It's about their salvation. It's about the coming of kings. It's about the ending of the reign of shame for Israel and for us. But we learn a lot about the kind of king that they need from this story. We learn that Israel's plight goes a long way past being surrounded by Philistines who hate you. And Hannah's barrenness really proves this. The problem of this story, the curse that, uh, you know, hangs over this particular narrative is not a Philistine problem. It's just a general curse problem. And if God removes the Philistines, that won't be sufficient to deal with all of Israel's problems, that they need someone who can bear and reverse this particular curse, they need a true deliverer. And years from now, another Nazarite will be born to a barren woman, and he will come to announce a king that comes to deal with this very problem. Not just the problem of barrenness, but the problem of shame and the curse. I mean, think about Hannah. Here she is, year after year, her shame is brought to the fore and there's nothing she can do to rid herself of it. She has no power in herself that the curse that has begun long ago in the garden of Eden still hangs over her life. And there's no future, if you will, at least that she can see that changes any of this. And even as she obeys the law, the law only shines a light on her problem. You are barren. You are under the curse. And try as you might, there's nothing you can do to rid yourself of it. But in steps the God who hears and remembers in mercy. And we're being taught by this story, if anything's going to ever undo the curse that hangs over, it won't be through mere faithfulness, but it will have to come by gift and grant of God. He will have to do an act for the powerless. So she gets a son. But as we will learn, so do we. I mean, think about this as we close this morning. God could come today and he could remove all your presenting problems. He could clear up your debt. He could fix your marriage. He could give you children if you're lacking. He could supply, you know, uh, the wife you've desired He could increase your salary and give it a day or a week or a month or two and you'd still be miserable because you take away all those presenting problems, whether they be the Philistines or whatever you have going on in your life, and there's still this underlying issue of the curse that brings with it shame that we cannot rid ourselves of. And the reality that uh, we don't have the power to somehow undo that which causes both our guilt and our shame. I mean, you want to leave in peace this morning? I mean, you want to live in peace day by day in your life? It won't come from all of your problems being solved. Well, eventually it will. But it comes from this problem being solved. If you want to know how to leave in peace today, look at what Hannah does. Because the Bible makes plain your helplessness is your only hope. I mean, those who are at least desperate are halfway there. (laughs) It's the confident and the sure and the certain that God says you're too blind to even see the problem at present. I mean, your good spots and your virtue and your strength, those are all killing you. I mean, think of how did you become a Christian to begin with? You eventually came to an end and say, I can't do anything more, so I've got to give up. And your Christian growth depends on the same thing, knowing just how much you need God. And the dangerous part is when we no longer feel desperate at all. When we feel fat and happy and content and sure that there's nothing that we need. I mean, I've seen it. Time and time again, pastorally, I've seen it in my own life. You ever meet someone, they come to you broken, and everything that God does, both in word and sacrament in their life, they're able to give thanks for, they they see him in everything, they're so thankful, and then you see, you know, things get better, maybe, you know, they get a better job, or this problem's cleared up, and you see that dependence start to vanish, And pretty soon, our need for God and our dependence on Him vanishes with it. It's the most dangerous place to be as a Christian. But the safest place to be is to know that you're needy. I mean, part of why being around people who have completely shipwrecked their lives is such a good thing is because they know they're desperate most of the time. (laughs) And you can remember that though it may not look like that, that you're desperate too. But if you do see your need, the beauty is that you can call out to the God who loves to rescue the needy, who hears and remembers. I mean, this person, Hannah, came to God and he answered. But even before he produced the answer to her problem, She was able to leave in peace because he assured her with his word. How much more, dear Christian, do you have as you come this morning? This father who loves the needy has given his son. And now you are under his rule, under his kingship. God has answered the lifelong prayer of all the needy by supplying a savior. If you want to see how God remembers mercy, look at the cross. That is how attuned his ear is to those who are desperate. And because he does so, you can cheer up. (laughs) You can eat at this table today. You can leave here with a brightened countenance, not because your problems are going to go away when you leave. Because most likely they won't. And if they do, you might encounter a bigger problem, which is you, uh, once they vanish. But because you can see at this table and through this word, that God has heard your cry. He does care about your desperate need. And so he provided a king to not only defeat all of your enemies, but to deal with the problem of curse and shame and sin. So as you leave this morning, may you remember the word made flesh, crucified for you, and may that speak in the loudest voice possible, that God sees you, he hears you, he cares. And may you cast your cares upon him, knowing that he loves to lend his ear to the desperate who call upon his name. Let's pray.